I'm Jeff Bennett. This week, we're not having our usual All Things Radio live broadcast. However, I asked Bill Sparks if I could do something special. He agreed, and this week, we're doing something just a bit different, something we've never done before on any edition of All Things Radio. This week, you're going to hear about a network that tried, but unfortunately died. It was NBC's News and Information Service, which began in the summer of 1975 and ended in 1977. You'll hear from all the people behind the scenes working at NBC's News and Information Service, and you'll know why the service didn't work. But it was a good service nevertheless. So without further ado, listen to the history of NBC's News and Information Service on this position of all things radio. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take a step back from these windows. Okay. Um, they object to people looking in on them. This is um, NIS. It's a News and Information Service for radio. There are 81 stations around the country that currently use this news service. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week operation. The first desk in front of us is where news writers write up their stories. The stories come to them by way of UPI or AT or Reuters Teletod news services. Those machines in front of us are capable of producing 80 words per minute of news. News writers will write up their stories. And um, once they've finished writing up their stories, they'll hand it to the ladies sitting right behind this desk. When she's finished, it'll go through the glass booth beneath the clocks, and from there, an on-the-air announcer will read it over the air. Testing one, two, three, four. Four, three, two, one. Two, three, one, four. Okay. <clears throat> Is everybody ready? This is Ray Rice. And I'm Cliff Barrett with your news and information service. The new Saigon... The time was six and a half minutes past six o'clock in the morning, New York time, on June 18th, 1975. For the first time ever, all news programming was being broadcast simultaneously by a network of radio stations across the country. It was a small network, only a couple of dozen stations at the outset. And in the end, the people calling the shots were unconvinced it could ever make money. But in between, in the 712 days the News and Information Service was on the air, a new chapter was written in the book of broadcast journalism. New markets were opened up for all news radio. New opportunities were given to young newsmen and women. And new challenges were presented to broadcast veterans as the concept of network radio and all news were married to create a new sound. That new sound was to emanate from the facilities that were already in place, studios that were rich in radio history. This is the show I didn't want to get here. Well, it's here, the farewell program on Monitor. And I'm Big Wilson Hayes. Nice to be with you. We're By the end of January 1975, Monitor was gone. And for most of the hour, the NBC radio network lines were lying idle. By this time, work was already quietly underway on what was to become NIS. And an announcement was to be made in a matter of days. Russ Tornabin, an NBC News vice president who was then general manager of the radio network, recalls how the idea began. The specific concept of having a full-time news service uh, was germinated from a visitor to Jack Thayer, who then um, asked us to investigate the feasibility as a program service and as a viable commercial and profitable uh, entity in networking. After the investigation was complete, the whole concept was turned over to the news division to implement. 
In the news division, the word soon reached Jim Holton, general manager of Radio News. Dick Wald said to me one day, Hey, have you heard the radio division is going to call, uh, is going to start uh, an all-news service? And I looked at him in some puzzlement, and he said, an all-news network. And uh, my first thought was, what will happen to the regular network? He said, well, somehow or other, we've got to figure out a way to get both of them on the same set of lines. At the time, Roy Wetzel was serving as director of the election unit. I was sitting, minding my own business, uh in my office one afternoon in January of 1975. The 1974 election was over with and things were a little slow. It was late in the day, as a matter of fact, when the phone rang and it was Mr. Wald who said he had a little something for me to do. And uh, he uh, told me he would like me to develop a, uh, a plan for an all-news radio network as quickly as possible. Wetzel went into seclusion and over an eight-day period came up with a plan or, as it's been said, invented the wheel. To help make it spin, Radio News went to the news manager of WNBC Radio, Alan Walden. I was contacted by Jim Holton, the general manager of Radio News, and put in touch with Roy and asked if I wanted to become involved in it. And Roy and I had lunch one day, uh, in the lobby of the CBS building, logically enough, to see if we could talk to one another and relate to one another in any way, and if, in fact, we could uh, discuss this. And I was very excited about it. it. seemed like a good thing to do, the most exciting thing that I could do since I'd been in the business, and I still feel that way about it. Roy Wetzel agreed, but felt there was a crucial next step. I mean, we'd never at that point been into a studio. We really had no idea what this thing would sound like that I had written down on these sheafs of paper that I was wandering around with that were that were 50 and 60 pages long that represented a typical week's plan broken down by half hours but we had no idea what, what this would sound like if if we actually went into a studio and tried to win a control room tried to put this on the radio or put it on anything and it was urgent that we get into get into a control room in a hurry uh, and and try that and we'd already decided we we're gonna go ahead and announce the thing publicly but we thought it'd be a good idea if we if we tried to figure out whether or not this thing could could make any sense to a, a listener. A team was assembled. Roy Wetzel was producer. Bob Lamusio at the engineering controls. Laurie Grant, the associate director. Jack O'Rourke was brought in on sports. And Charles McCord co-anchored with Alan Walden. We said, okay, we'll take a sound like an NBC sound, the chimes, the three chimes, and we'll, uh, we'll use this wire copy and see if we can hit specific marks in a 15-minute period with different types of programming. We gathered up uh, feature material that had been used on the radio network, anything we could beg, borrow, or steal, in an attempt to construct 15 minutes' worth of programming. It took us six hours to get the first 15 minutes' worth of programming, after which we were all sprawled on couches all over the old monitor studio, wondering seriously if, in fact, it could be done. I sat here in a cold sweat, continually, watching the clock, watching the script, hit times, off times. And at that early juncture, it just seemed insanity. I, I, I swore to Alan Walden, I said, it's not going to work. It was a terrible experience. We, we went and we drank a lot uh, immediately after, after that first dry run. Shortly thereafter, Suzette Knittel, who was a news writer, was hired 
as a news writer and an assistant to Roy Wetzel in writing a script of actual demonstration programming, an hour-long script. I took Roy's concepts of, of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I put them into uh, operation in the sense that I wrote script. I went into the files and into the library and pulled out, uh, you know, entertainment pieces that had been done previously by Gene Shallot or a book review from someone, so things that primarily had been used uh, on the radio network, the NBC radio network, the hourly network, and just put everything together and put scripting together. I had worked in all-news radio uh, previously, and I knew a bit about putting together hours uh, for all-news radio, and that's basically what we did. We made a one-hour program. And it became so repetitious by the fourth or fifth week that we were working this thing. It was just dull and boring. It was really, really bad. It kept getting better in quantum leaps. Each weekend it got considerably better than it had been the weekend before. And we finally told uh, the NBC News and Radio Divisions, Roy Wetzel informed them, that, yeah, we can do this. And then the decision on whether or not to do it was made for us. NBC Radio President Jack Thayer already had announced the plans for the new service in February. But according to Bob Mounty, the vice president and general manager of NIS, those plans were not engraved in stone. When management gave approval to the radio division to do this, it was a conditional approval. It said, okay, we will offer this to the industry. We will publicize it. We will tell them what we're going to do. And if 75 of the top 100 markets can be included in it, then we will give the approval to do it. However, when we went into the marketplace, we found that broadcasters, broadcast station operators, were not willing to make a commitment until we had. That was something we didn't anticipate. In April, a change in thinking. We still felt that the enthusiasm generated in the industry was so immense. It was overwhelming. The press was super. And we read that to be intent rather than interest or excitement. And we went back to management. And we said, we think this will happen, but we can't get commitments until we commit. Therefore, management said, okay, let's go shoot the works. And NBC expressed great confidence. And they said, we'll do it. <laughs> This is Alan Walden. And I'm Charles McCord. With your news and information service. And among the top stories in Saigon... That's what NIS sounded like when it was presented to the industry at the NAB convention in April of 1975. But there was to be another phase in development of the sound of NIS. We got together with a, with a, uh, a company which specializes in providing musical identifications for radio and gave them a very simple project. Give us three notes that no, had never been used on radio before for NIS, three musical notes, which would become the basis for all the musical bridges that were built. They are the first three notes of the song Rosemary. We made a decision uh, not to use music, and that was indeed one of the, uh, one of the advantages uh, to our stations the stations that signed up with NIS is that they didn't have to maintain music licenses because we wouldn't use any music and they wouldn't use any music and therefore they wouldn't have to pay the fees to uh, ASCAP and BMI. We wanted our sounders to be the to be the uh, the sound of NIS and uh, any other music would have complicated that. 
There was another interesting problem. If radio network and NIS stations were to share the same lines, how would they each receive hotline news reports on breaking stories? A conventional network, a regular network station, expected to hear a certain tone, followed by 30 seconds of information regarding what was about to happen, and then an actual bulletin, at which time it would put the bulletin on the that air. That sound means we are about to broadcast an NBC News hotline report of an important news development. Well, with NIS programming 47 minutes out of the hour and a very rigid format to be followed, how was that possible? We worked it out. We're standing by while details of the story are being assembled here in the NBC newsroom. In a few seconds, we'll be hearing from NBC News correspondent Don Doe. The talk up and the bulletin appeared on NIS. Only the bulletin appeared on the radio network, and it seemed to work rather well. This is an NBC News hotline report. This is Don Doak. Casualties are reported high in the crash of a... It worked very well. We had, uh, our, we had problems both with NIS stations and network stations at the beginning. Uh, we had problems with network stations simply because NIS came into existence. We faced uh, threats of uh, many serious defections on the network. They didn't come about. We stood our ground and... Uh, and we weathered it and managed to create a service, particularly the use of the Code 2 hotlines, that, uh, that did the job. To put NIS on the air in the first place, there were personnel decisions to make. We had no people when the announcement was made at the NAB that we were going to go ahead with this. The staff consisted of uh, Roy Wetzel and Alan Walden and Suzette Knittel. That was the whole staff. Now, it was the middle of April when this was taking place, and we were given a, tar a target date of the middle of June to get on the air. That gave us all of 60 days in which to build the studios, develop the staff, hire all the people, bring them all in, train them in the new format, get the feature contributors together, and go on the radio. The next people hired were Al Wasser, who was the charge editor, the editor-in-charge at, uh, at the ABC radio network to supervise the hard news operation, manager of news, and Helen Saros from CBS, who was in charge of their Plinks service, their internal uh, network distribution service of feature material. I concerned myself with the air staff getting together the people who would actually present the news on the air 24 hours a day, and Al Wasser concerned himself with getting the backup people, the editors and the writers and the producers, in consultation with Wetzel and myself. I arrived here on April 21st, 1975, and was handed a pile of resumes and uh, told to hire a staff. I knew from word one who I wanted, the first half of the staff. I had the names already filed away. They were names I had been filing away for 20 years. The Ed Browns from, uh, from NEW and Ray Rice and Cliff Barrett and uh, Bill Lynch from CBS and George Engel, who didn't come until later, who was at ABC at the time, and a few others. It was just a long series of 16, 17-hour days uh, on the phone getting some paperwork done at night, uh, 
in some cases, doing uh, one case that I remember doing a phone interview at night, a three-hour phone interview with Mike Shapiro, who I did hire uh, as an editor at that point. Uh, Mike was working a day shift in Philadelphia, was not able to get up here, and uh, there was no choice but to talk to him by phone. We got into a very, very lengthy conversation, and uh, I hired him on the basis of that. Since the first ad had appeared in broadcasting in February, audition tapes had been piling up in the radio news offices in room 505 of the RCA building. Now, I listened to all of them, and Roy Wetzel listened to about two-thirds of them before he gave up. I think he was going into shock, having listened to all of these voices, trying to remember what they all sounded like. 870 audition tapes. From the 870, we got down to 100, from the 100 to 50, from the 50 to 20, and the final selection of personnel was made from those last 20. And they came from all over the country. Sue O'Brien from KOA in Denver, Doris McMillan, who was with us at the time, came from WJR in Detroit, Bob Schmidt from Philadelphia. The phone rang in the WCAU newsroom, as it always did. It was Alan Walden in New York at NBC. And he said, how would you like to come work in New York at the News and Information Service for blankety-blank-blank dollars a, a year, which was about double what I was making at that time in Philadelphia? And I said, absolutely, you're on. We wanted Jim Donnelly from WCBS Radio in New York, and we, as a matter of fact, we, we talked about it, but we couldn't come to terms. We only needed 15 anchor people. We needed uh, three or four times that many in the support area, writers, producers, editors, news assistants, uh, desk assistants, and what have you. And that recruiting was considerably more difficult, and we went on a raid. It was that simple. It was a raiding party. Not since Jesse James went through Northfield has there been such a raid. Uh, all over the industry, ABC, CBS, Westinghouse, here at NBC itself, everywhere we could beg, borrow, or steal good people, we got them. We made a lot of mistakes along the way, too, because we needed a tremendous number of people in a very short time. And we assumed up front that about 30, 35% of the people we hired would be no good. And we were pretty close. They just weren't ready for us. I was told by Roy Wetzel when he hired me that in the first six months of NIS, there would be a 25 to 30% turnover on the editorial staff. It came out to, I believe, 27.9%. Among news writers themselves, there were differing opinions on the level of the staff, and Mike Shapiro and Gary Kay were known for their contrasting views. As I look back on the experience, I, I think that uh, the main thing that will remain with me is, uh, is just the, the quality of the people involved in that operation. I, I felt that the, uh, the news gathering, the presentation on the air, and, and the uh, newsroom operation was by and large staffed by excellent journalists, and I think the product we put on the air reflected that. I think NIS has been a marvelous place for a lot of people to earn while they learn. Uh, it's unfortunate, you know, it's just that they've, they've paid out a whole lot of money to a whole lot of folks who just didn't have the experience, and I don't think merited working at a network operation. Perhaps it was the people on the air who had the most fun doing NIS, although production people behind the scenes have some spirited recollections of their own. The styles of the air talent varied from the authoritative formality of an Edward Brown 
to the informality of a Charles McCord, to the affability of a Barrett and Rice team. Business reporter Jim Newman was the constant foil for their jibes. The market's heavy, the Dow down. This is Jim Newman. Jim, why don't you come back in about a half hour and try and get it right. This is your news and information Ray and I felt from the beginning that it was, since it was news and information, that it was more than just a newscast that we were presenting, that there were opportunities to, to inject personality, particularly in the feature segments, things of that nature. Uh, we made it a, a very conscious point never to mess around in a hard news section. From time to time, a little laughter might carry over. But it was it was strictly a natural thing. Ray and I liked each other. Uh, we liked Jim. And it just developed. And, and uh, with Jim in particular, it got to a, a, a can-you-top-this situation. He kept trying to <laughs> sing us. And he never really had a chance because we controlled the clock. <laughs> we always got the last word. McCord preferred to project a relaxed style, too. I tried to talk to the people, always, uh, never down to them. I don't think I have the ability to talk down to anybody and wouldn't want to come across that way. That's why I, you know, a little more informal, perhaps. Out in the newsroom, midday producer Fred Ferrer. There have been a few days that I think have been about as good as possible. There may be one of those a month. And there are the vast majority of days that, uh, that you do pretty well. Uh, the, the problem, I think, in producing all news always is to prevent, on your worst day, to prevent the disaster from happening. Make it sound nice and smooth when things are going wrong. And then, if you can do that, then when you're having a good day, and a lot of news is happening, and your editor's having a good day, and your writers are having a good day, and your air people are having a good day, and the people out in the street are doing a good job for you, then once in a while it really hits, and it becomes a, a real trip. One of the frequent sites in the Studio 5B produce area, the NIS newsroom, was an NIS producer making a beeline for the air studio to brief the talent about an upcoming live line report. Rosemary Frosino, who worked the evening shift, was on the receiving end of those briefings. I remember a big problem with the Indians in South Dakota on the reservation. I'll remember the producer running in with a scrap of paper and putting it in front of me and saying, Edgar Bear Runner is on the phone, talk to him. I thrive on controlled chaos. And at its best, NIS is that, but with an emphasis on the word controlled, that there is some sort of guiding principle and we're not doing something scattershot. For a time, Mark Kuznets also worked in the NIS Features Unit as the senior producer, and we'll take a look at features next. <laughs> NBC wasn't the first company to actively consider an all-news radio network. This is Barbara Hochter, and NBC executive Russ Tornabin discovered an earlier effort in 1974. About a year before NIS was dreamed of, an ad appeared, a blind ad, in fact, appeared in broadcasting magazines saying, if you're interested in an all-news service, contact this box number. I called a friend of mine who was manager of a station in Kentucky, an affiliate, and asked him to answer the ad for me to find out who it is. And he did, and he sent it to me, and it was Chuck Renwick from Store. The same Chuck Renwick who later joined NBC to sign up subscribers for NIS. He says Storer got about 70 responses to the ad and made some tentative moves. We did approach uh, Reuters and a few other news gathering operations, realizing that Storer did not have the network lines, didn't have the news gathering resources required for this. We did have the broadcasting facilities and the broadcast marketing expertise. 
Uh, so the idea then was to go into partnership with a news-gathering organization, uh, utilizing this research and this, this marketing opportunity, and create an all-news network. But at that time, uh, Storer's priorities, after studying the situation and, and realizing that it was going to be a very, very costly, long turnaround kind of proposition, decided uh, not to make the investment. After his NBC experience, Renwick now questions whether network all-news will ever work. All-news is a, is a very, very attractive format. Uh, it is something that a lot of local broadcasters really want to get into and, and are happy being into. Uh, the question is, how do you make it a viable uh, profit center for a network? That's an answer we unfortunately weren't able to find. All told, 79 stations signed up for NIS, although not all of them were on the line at the same time. This is Barbara Hochter. The News and Information Service was an outlet for some feature contributors like Cleveland Amory, who had already established national reputation. Others like Mary McGeechee, who reviewed movies for NIS, were still developing their followings. I think some people in, in, within the business knew who I was, except for a few bylines. My name was not known around the country. Last summer, I traveled and I lived in San Francisco a couple months. I was in Detroit. I was in Knoxville. I met many people who were familiar with my name and my work. Um, you might say I have, I have a name in Miami. I was quoted a few times in movie ads, although not frequently, not being one who praises every single movie that comes along. Unfortunately, the music dancing along with Raggedy Ann and Andy has a sameness to it. The Eagle has landed is another example of movies being too big for their britches, or in this case, Nazi jodhpurs. The domino principle is one of those pseudo-CIA stories in which the In spite of its non-show qualities, Pfeiffer's Hold Me is worth hugging. This is Mary McGeechee. This time around, with Jack Lemmon piloting the disaster, Airport 77 gives you less reason no, to sit No, it's really no different than, than the general Lemmon, public. If you were to sit anybody down and say, now come on, tell me what you really thought of the movie. It, it takes a little more, a critic, it, it's their job to explain why it's good or bad, but you, you know, people will say in a minute, it's a terrible movie, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful movie or whatever. Um, I have no hesitation at all. The commentators had no reluctance to speak their minds either. Carl Stokes and Harriet Van Horn in New York, John Lofton in Washington, and Sherry Keene in Colorado. Later came Terry Eastland from Greensboro, North Carolina. The Bakke case raises the question of whether racial, ethnic, and sexual... Terry Eastland was an effort in the Joe year Boring, that director of NIS. ...ran for president, an effort to acknowledge the fact there are Southern conservatives and there are people who speak with something of an accent and that Jimmy Carter doesn't really talk funny. Perhaps those of us who have grown up in the Northeast talk funny. And Terry Eastland was an effort to uh, give some national airspace to a Southern conservative opinion. The conflict of opinions between the newsroom on the fifth floor and the features unit on the eighth floor was never really resolved. I thought uh, for much of the time NIS was alive that the features unit was involved in its own world, which had nothing to do with the real world that we were dealing with. The thing you do when you're down there in the news production area, you're dealing with the real world. And all of a sudden you get some, uh, some very odd feature about some very esoteric book. It just kind of is jarring. 
It means nothing to the listener to start off with. It probably means nothing to nobody outside of, of or to anybody outside of a very small area of elite in New York. Um, and it just stops whatever flow you're able to get. Barry Cornett, NIS Features producer. As it was explained to me, we were the news and information service. And as far as I was concerned, we were not simply in the business of dispensing hard news or even soft news. We were in the business of expanding the consciousnesses of an aggregate America. I felt it was just as valid to to discuss what it was that would make a Nureyev uh, sacrifice all of his friends and relatives and so on and so forth and defect from the Soviet Union uh, 10 years or 11 years prior to the interview which had no uh, hook in today, as, as it is to, to cover, uh, you know, an airplane crash. I think it changed to some extent when, uh, when, the lead, when, when Roy Wetzel left. And then I think it really changed um, when, after the strike, when Joe Moore and Jim Farley had been sitting, you know, really working their knuckles off downstairs, watching the watching the, the nitty-gritty, minute-to-minute operation. But it still didn't change radically until Helen Saros left and Mark Kuznets came in to replace her. I wanted to see more relevant features. I wanted to see features that at least acknowledged the world outside. I wanted to see feature material that was tied to breaking news stories. I just wanted to see more interesting features. I didn't want to just fill time. From one regime to the next, there was a change in philosophy about how listeners listen. They turn the radio on and they, they leave it on for a period of time and kind of listen to whatever whatever is there. Thus, the idea of keeping things relatively short was that you didn't want to have anything so long that it would be um, a sufficient obstruction to their interest that they would become sufficiently motivated to go and turn the radio off. I believe more in predictable programming. That has always been uh, something I believe that people tune in for. Did people tune in for the Zussmans? Little baby boys are born with an erection. Little baby girls are born lubricating. Dr. Mary Calderon, a pioneer in the field of sex education, says that parents play a heavy role in helping their children. They always aired. I never heard of anybody who specifically went out of their way to to write me and find out when the Zussmans would be on so that they could zap the Zussmans from their schedule. They drew a lot of mail. They drew a lot of interest. You know, people love to hate people. And some people would listen to the Zussmans and they would think that was terrible, that it was, you know, we were promoting sin. And then there were other people who uh, felt they made a genuine contribution and went into an area that had previously been taboo on radio. In sports news, the Grambling Texas Southern game underway at the Dome Stadium in Houston, Texas. Barry Warner is on our live line with a report. Barry? Barry Warner, Houston, Texas. Go ahead with that report. There were technical problems. There was also an uncertainty in the area of sports about what the sports policy was. Fred Ferrer became the de facto sports producer and, in effect, set much of the policy on his own. He and sports anchors Charles Scott King and Jack O'Rourke offered some thoughts on the subject. We tried to be have people live at as many events, major and minor, as possible and do live reports, which gave us an advantage over the wires 
mean, all the stations that subscribe to us have the wires, and they get the scores just as fast as we do. It really doesn't make a lot of sense for us or for them to have our guys sitting in New York reading the same scores they're getting. But what we can give them is somebody at a vast number of games during especially football and basketball season reporting well ahead of everybody else. I think that we might have gone more to heavily toward the professional sports and uh, toward the uh, major college sports, such as football. And that may sound strange. I don't consider college basketball a major sport until you get into playoffs and uh, tournament play. And they never did give us a whole lot of time to do sports. I was a great uh, believer in, particularly on the weekends, when you had a lot of activity going on in sports, opening up the sports programs and taking an extra section, perhaps. Make it five minutes. But we never managed to sell that to those who were in the power to make those changes. It would have been nice if we'd had the time, the money, to really get into doing some stuff in sports. I'm not quite sure what I would have changed if perhaps on the weekends maybe it would have been section 7 and 14. And it would have been sponsored on the weekends. Every Wednesday night was Fred Farrow's night at home where people would call him from all around the country and say, hey, Fred, uh, do you want me to cover the basketball game this weekend? Yes. And he would assign them specific times to call and file their reports. Didn't do this at NBC, at 30 Rock. He did this at his home every Wednesday night. It just seemed easier. I, it started, I started doing it here. And there's no way to, to, to be on top of producing whatever was going on and having, and making phone calls to, uh, to stringers to see if they'd cover stuff for us and taking other phone calls from other sports stringers in. And the company paid me for, for working at home that night. And it worked out well for me because it gave me a period where I could be, give undivided attention to it. There was a lot of opposition to sports uh, when we first started out. A lot of people didn't understand sports, particularly the people that were running NIS. Uh, one guy no longer here, I can recall in the early days of NIS, stopped at my desk back in 505 one day, and he said to me, Hey, Jack, you're doing a good job. And I said, thanks a lot. He said, not that I know that much about it. He said, but my wife listens all the time, and she follows sports very closely. O'Rourke and Ferrer made it to Montreal for the 76 Summer Olympics. The spirit of the Olympics, to me, I think, was best summed up by... Uh, the Canadians, who did not win a gold in the Olympics, and they desperately wanted to. battling it out. Babishoff, Gurley Babishoff, can she hang in for a gold medal? The final event of the night, the U.S. will win it. Towards the end of the swimming there was a women's relay race in which East Germany, as usual, finished first. The United States finished third. And somehow, four kids from Canada finished second, four girls. And they're all like 13, 14, 15 years old. And the whole country went absolutely bananas over this one silver medal is three before kids won. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun just to watch, the, watch their incredible joy, the whole country. We found that a number of stations were taping our sports programs. And as you know, on the NIS wheel, the sports programs were never carried in required time. They were carried in the optional quarter hours. So stations that were going all local in those optional quarter hours were taping Nat Ash doing the sports programs with my feeds from Montreal. Then on the half hour, they would put a local sports program in. They would take out that piece of O'Rourke with the actuality from Montreal, selling it to local sponsors. And it was like Jack O'Rourke was Miami's man in Montreal. Jack O'Rourke was Wilmington's man in Montreal or Denver's man in Montreal. They were making a real local package out of the reports from Montreal. 
You've got it in sports. This is your news and information station. As uncertain as it may have been in sports, NIS knew exactly what it was doing in another area, politics. Senator John Tunney of California, oh. missed it again, didn't we? We were about to hear from Senator John Tunney, but didn't. Alan, uh, NBC News now says that Jimmy Carter has won the seven electoral votes in Mississippi. That means that Carter has 272 electoral votes by our count. Jimmy Carter is the president-elect of the United States. At that moment, NIS was only hours from learning of its doom, but it had covered the presidential contest as early as the Iowa precinct caucuses. Bill Lynch was there. started phoning in the results. On the Democratic side, Jimmy Carter topped the list of six active candidates here with 30% support in those caucuses. We were the first people to get through and talk to him on the telephone early the next morning. By Partly because Jody Powell was uh, using our phones to report back Morrison to Carter, who was in New York, on the results of the Iowa precinct caucuses. So we were able to get a, a good two-minute interview with him and do it live from Iowa. I'm quite certain nobody said, let's crank up an all-news radio network because it's going to be a hell of a political year next year and this would be a great tool to cover it. But relatively early on, it occurred to us that... Uh, to me that uh, indeed uh, this uh, tool was NIS was going to offer was going to open up some very interesting possibilities he dangled the tantalizing prospect of covering a presidential campaign from start to finish something I'd never done and always wanted to do NIS had enough time that you never really had to have the feeling that any other news development anywhere in the world could completely could mean that there could be a two-week blackout or even a, a one-day blackout on the political process, because there was always enough time to, to, get, to get the political story in, too, and the network reached to go out and get it. He felt very strongly that, that the people, our listeners, ought to be given the fullest account of the, not only the story, the day-by-day -day development of the campaign and the statements of the candidates and the machinations of the campaign managers, but also a, a broad understanding of the process, how it worked kind of an ongoing civics lesson. There was an early decision made that he should travel a great deal, that he should go to where the political news was. We would uh, typically move into a state capital where the returns would be collected two or three or four days before the voting and would uh, have two or three engineers and three or four correspondents and a director and a producer. There was a very, very natural um, division of labor that worked out all along the line with me dreaming up cockamamie schemes and Bill filling in all the blank spaces. He was uh, as responsible as I was for following the story, keeping up with it, with maintaining liaison with the NBC polling people and the local political folks to have a good idea of what the story was, how it would develop, who we should talk to, and in addition to that, uh, coordinate with the news producers here to get what he thought was the the right amount of airtime and get us on at the right time and also make sure that we were physically able to do it smoothly. Through the primaries to Madison Square Garden and Kansas City. Remember the Buckley boomlet at Kansas City? We took to hanging out in a room in a hotel where the Ronald Reagan, Jesse Helms people spent a great deal of time. They used to get together after 
each session and talk about the progress they had made. Well, we were on the air with Jesse Helms at about midnight or one o'clock in the morning. I don't remember whether it was a Monday night or a Tuesday night. I simply don't recall. But it was about, we were on the air with the story about Buckley about ten hours before anybody else was. Along with the technicians, the associate directors had jobs to do behind the scenes. After a while, it became routine. Sounder. Sounder. A touch of respectability for the world's oldest profession? It could happen. We'll have a report coming up next. Sounder. A special Israeli Okay, this is coming up on B-51. Things didn't go so smoothly at the beginning, as Laurie Grant well remembers. I had Roy Wetzel standing by my side. Talent was in the studio, and I had ADs, 15 ADs standing behind me. There were 15 engineers over here, just lots and lots of people. And I kept losing my place on the routine, and Roy kept saying, Are you sure you've done this before? <laughs> it was really crazy, but it was fun. The engineers were trembling, touching the knobs. The ADs' hands were trembling as they gave cues. And I felt sorry for the talent because they had to read the clock, and we kept cutting off when we'd get to gates. We'd just close the mic, and they'd be going, up, oh. <laughs> you know, and look up and hate us. It was crazy at first, everybody yelling at everybody else. I've never used such vile language in front of people as I used that first week. In training the ADs, lifting them out of the chair and sitting down myself and saying, this is how it should be done. And I'm sure they hated my guts <laughs> that first week, but it was the only way I felt I could train them. At one point in the history of NIS, the operation had to do without the engineers at all, and also the writers, editors, producers, news and feature assistants, and desk assistants. The National Broadcasting Company, meantime, has pressed the supervisory personnel into service to take up the slack caused by a walkout of the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, NABET. Some 1,700 technicians and news writers are on strike, walking out at midnight in New York, Washington, Chicago, Cleveland, San Francisco, and Burbank, California. NBC no, new News was unprepared for that strike. Jim Farley, NIS manager of news program. I had become management just two weeks before the strike. Joe Mooring, just two weeks before the strike, became a director. One of the first things she started asking was, shall we make contingency plans for the strike? And constantly she was told, ah, you're green at this. Don't worry. Don't make any strike preparations. There is going to be no strike. We were told this on the day of the strike, we were told, well, just in case, you better be here until midnight tonight. And the actual word of the strike really didn't come until, as far as we were concerned, until it moved on the wires at 11.40 p.m. We started tacking up some wire copy in a big hurry. We could have gone on with this uh, great spirit for about four days, but it, the strike lasted seven and a half weeks. And were it not for continuing support, from the strikers, which really sounds ironic, I suppose, but I mean, it was the the calls from the the people who were on strike who were genuinely concerned about the survival of NIS, not because they're going to lose a job if it goes down, but because they were behind the the creature in spirit. Um, the, I had critiques phoned in. <laughs> from some of the editors who were saying, hey, you better change that lead on the story. I just heard CBS update it, or uh, why don't you find out whichever writer is writing this particular pack and tell them that uh, they really should change their uh, approach to this story. It was just a uh, an effort of the heart. 
Howard Schoenholz, Nabit News Writer's shop steward. There were a good number of people who felt they didn't really know what they were striking for. Uh, they were people who felt to a certain extent that they were going out uh, on issues that didn't affect them. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a, a deal of, good deal of sentiment that part of the reason for the strike was um, the union wanting to establish its jurisdiction uh, firmly and finally over the whole field of uh, electronic journalism and minicams, and that it was going to make a stand and that the news writers, uh, being members of NABIT, were being pulled out and kept on the streets for seven weeks over an issue that really didn't affect them in the least. Um, I think as time went on, uh, just out of necessity, uh, we began to feel uh, some solidarity uh, with the people, uh, with everyone else who was out on strike. During this period, instead of writing copy, we tacked almost everything up except lead-ins to uh, carts and so forth. We had some news directors who called us during the strike saying they thought the writing was better. In some cases, it probably was. Um, the quality of our writing has always left something to be desired, although I think that by and large it's been on a par, if not slightly better, than wire service copy. Hi, is that luncheon meeting still going on? No, the luncheon meeting is supposed to be over now, and he's supposed to be meeting with Governor George Busby of Georgia and a group of Japanese business leaders. Okay, thank you. Will there be some kind of news conference or comment? Not that I know of. Okay. Basically, the coordinator's job is a traffic cop because you're handling a lot of lines and a couple of, you know, four tape rooms and engineer editor teams, and uh, and that's what a coordinator does. At least that's what I, I read that a coordinator, you know, the question has been bandied about the building. What does a coordinator do for a living? And... Uh, that's basically what he does, is try to, try to prevent chaos, that's all. I just wish someone could have defined that at some point. The job of the coordinator is to gather material for NIS and the radio network. Every day, in fact, even every hour is just an evolution of the duties and a further refinement of it. There's no, it was, there was no on-the-job training. You just learned uh, as you did. The Thursday before Easter was the day of the Last Supper. The Bible tells us that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples as a token of his humility. The more the people overseas got to know NIS, the better they were able to fulfill the service's needs. But Jim Farley recalls it took a great deal of effort. Our needs were not really explained adequately to the Washington Bureau, the London Bureau, our foreign people. And uh, we were dealing with people who, those who had been dealing with NBC in the past, were used to dealing in 30-second chunks of sound. And it was hard to break them of those habits. Then there was the question of TV people filing for radio. It is NBC News policy that any correspondent is an NBC News correspondent whose assignment includes television as well as radio. The cooperation... was hit and miss. It has been improving. I think it was not as great as it could have been, not as great as it should have been. I decided a long time ago to set up our own separate bureaus to handle the major stories. We've done that in Europe as well. We have our own uh, stringer stable around the world, which is the best in the business, and I hope we can hang on to most of that.
NBC had a record year in profit in 1976 and a record first quarter. NBC is now third in the ratings. It is a close third, but nonetheless third. NBC is capable of doing much better, both with respect to the ratings and with respect to profit. No effort is being spared to give to NBC the tools that it needs to do the job. The 1977 report to stockholders from Edgar Griffiths, president of the RCA Corporation. NBC already had made its decision about NIS, and NBC News president Richard C. Wald was there. It was the radio division that suggested and the management that approved the idea of folding NIS. Um, News was called into this and asked if it disagreed. Uh, me. I was asked whether I disagreed. I said that I did disagree. I did not, was not anxious to fold NIS. But the financial realities were such that the losses looked as though they would not merely continue for a far longer time than anybody thought, but they would begin to grow enormously in order to make the uh, service better or, uh, or to meet the kinds of problems we were facing. And my editorial sense that this was well worth continuing was kind of overruled by the financial problem of continuing it. This is your news and information station, WRIT Milwaukee, News Radio 1340. WNWS FM New York, serving the metropolitan area. This is 97 News FM. KOH, Reno, Nevada. Gives you the world. W News 15, WNUS, West Springfield. This is News Radio 1280. KWMS, Salt Lake City. This is News Radio 12, WQSA, Sarasota. WILM, Wilmington. Both AM stations and FM stations were on the NIS roster. How well did the FMs do? Jim Farley has some thoughts about that. There were some um, fair successes on FM. The stations in Rochester, Louisville, and Baltimore had some fair success with it. Um, but this was uh, an error to think that it could su succeed on the FM band. This was compounded by the decision of NBC not to commit its AM-owned stations. They did so in only one market, and that's Washington, a market with a higher FM penetration than AM. So it was really no great shakes to commit WRC, AM, to NIS. To expect NIS to succeed on the FM band in New York, Chicago, and San Francisco was ludicrous. Good afternoon, and welcome to part two of our NIS pre-air seminar. I'm Chuck Renwick, Director of Station Relations for NIS, and today we'll be addressing ourselves to the programming and operations aspects of NIS. Advice to NIS stations in early June 1975. Renwick remembers the emphasis was always on local effort. We simply told an NIS subscriber he had to be the best news-gathering and reporting radio station in his market uh, to make this thing succeed. We never ever suggested to a radio station that they could plug NIS in and expect to win without a tremendous local news effort. But we did tell them that 
your entire local effort, your entire local programming effort, is local news and public affairs. You no longer have to put record lists together. You don't have to gather or uh, broadcast uh, world or national news. We do that for you. But you must do an outstanding local news job. How did they comply with the advice? On a scale of 1 to 10, they complied on a scale of 1 to 10. Some did an excellent job. Some did a terrible job. Just uh, uh, ignored the, the warnings that you can't plug it in and walk away from it. And they regarded it in some cases, unfortunately, uh, as one might regard uh, a syndicated music service that uh, uh, you literally put on a tape and, and walk away from. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, the service went to KNWZ. Bill Weaver, the owner and general manager, liked NIS. It provided me with a programming opportunity that I was eager to have, and uh, I liked that kind of thing anyway. You know, I was in the rock business for so many years that my ears looked like record players, so I uh, you know, that didn't hurt me to leave that. In fact, I'd, it, it, I don't believe I could ever go back into the rock music format. But anyway, um, so... You're in country now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm country now, and that's a little better than rock. But uh, uh, at least I can listen to it a little bit in my older age. Apparently, the price was not prohibitive. The market price here was $2,000 for Albuquerque, $2,000 a month. And my agreement with NBC was, which they, uh, as I recall, had some agreements with other stations, was on a first year, in order to help you get started, it was at a reduced price. Weaver started out with what he called an 11-man local news staff. You cut out your disc jockeys and you just expand in your news department. But uh, from the programming field, I guess we, uh, we expanded it by about three people. But they were different types of people. And then, of course, we had some other obligations like stringers in the field, and we had a correspondent up in Santa Fe, the capital, and, uh, you know, those type of things. So we, uh, yeah, we, we expanded it and tried to cover it as best we could locally, and I think we did a good job. But you might say Weaver's people didn't do it all alone. This was a great team effort also uh, between the local staffs and the NBC staffs. So it wasn't completely a separate type of a... An operation. I mean, you didn't do your thing by yourself, nor did we by ourselves. It was a joint uh, effort on both uh, of both parts, you know, that really made it a success. And uh, you know, we were just here, just as proud of of the NIS people as we were of our own people. You know, uh, in fact, uh, our listening audience had a, in many ways, could not distinguish between the NIS people and our own local people. And many, many times, uh, I was complimented on our personnel here, uh, and when they were, in fact, NBC personnel. Weaver was sorry to lose the service. What bothers me most is it took me 30 to 45 days to get mentally reattuned to a new format. Uh, I was quite psychologically depressed because I, it was like losing a child almost. You know, not really, but I mean, uh, your emotional uh, attitude about uh, giving up something that you know is successful, that you know uh, is, is serving a, a, a real good public cause, is very difficult to just forget about it. And uh, so for 30 to 45 days there, uh, I think me and some of the other members of the staff here who, who we retained on and uh, had a very psychological problem. Uh, I, I'm over it now, and, uh, you know, I'm going home for the new thing. But, uh, you, you know, it's like you don't put six or eight or ten months of your life into something and a lot of your money and your capital investment 
and then turn it over one night and walk away from it and forget it, you know. Not if you believe in it, anyway. Within NBC, in the industry, and around the country, NIS leaves its legacy. I can't recall when, when Radio News had as much uh, respectability in this company, throughout all the branches and departments and divisions of this company that it, that it had when NIS came along and during the period of NIS. And even now, I think we are basking in some of the attention that we got uh, when NIS was uh, a major uh, operation in this company and had a lot of people looking at it. Roy Wetzel and Jim Holton and myself and certainly Jim Farley in the news division are people, not exclusively, but we're certainly in the vanguard of the people who believe there is a place in broadcast news for radio and that radio has a job to do and it is very important that we be there and that we be a class operation and not just a rewrite of the wires, that we have an independent, enterprising, news-gathering organization, which we had with NIS and which I hope will carry over to the radio network. By bringing to the public's attention the need for more information, or by actually making more information available to them, not only in New York and Chicago, but in Jackson, Mississippi, and Albuquerque, and places like that, it was successful. Anyone involved in NIS, and I know this is difficult for people who are going to be out of a job after May 29, should not feel that their efforts were wasted. And while no noble causes don't fill the breadbasket, it was one hell of an effort that we should all be terribly, terribly proud of. You couldn't beat us. Couldn't beat us. Hijacking stories uh, all around the world. We just pick up a phone, we call Paris, and we get an on-the-spot report of what's happening there on an airplane hijacking. Who can do this? You know, a local station can't do it. We were equipped to do it. We had people not only in the city, not only in the country, but around the world covering for every community that subscribed to NIS. NIS was always a question of great potential. It never matched in actuality what the potential might have been. Had it succeeded, had it grown beyond those stations that it had, it would have been very valuable, both to NBC corporately, it would have made a lot of money, presumably, although I was never really sure it would make as much as was originally suggested for it, and as a showcase for what we do and what kind of group we are in NBC News. That it was always limited in its distribution kept it from being the kind of showcase I thought it should and might have been. In less than two years, it quadrupled the number of all news radio stations in the United States. And by doing that, it was successful. On a personal level, I think I have accomplished one very large thing to me, and that is helping to develop a few, I can't put an exact number on it, but a few new professional broadcast journalists who will be working at NBC or other places and will therefore improve broadcast news. Being in on something from the very beginning is a very stimulating and rewarding experience, and to watch it grow, it's like a child.
You know, you become very close to it. You want very badly for it to work. When we found out it wasn't working and it was going to go down, it was a very sad moment for me. And I was on my way over to do another assignment, and it was a very hard afternoon to get through because I was very emotional about it. It was a good idea. It was well executed. What we did was well done. But whether or not the market existed in the United States for a network of all news, I still question that. I think somebody's going to pick up the ball in a couple of years, and we will see another all news network. Here at NBC, we'll miss the NIS operation. It brought together a lot of talented and dedicated professionals, and it was an innovative service. It'll have its influence on the broadcasting business. I'm John Bohannon.